Hello and welcome to the inaugural episode of Closing Arguments. I'm your host, Ryan Ruff. In a few minutes, I'll be joined really by the star of our show. That's Mr. John Razumich of Razumich and Associates. Look, we want to take a moment to hear to thank anybody who's joining us here on the inaugural Facebook live stream. Or hey, if you're checking us out on a podcasting platform or a video platform after the fact, still all the same. We want to thank you for tuning in here for our inaugural episode. Now, before we bring John out, I want to kind of set the scene, if you will, for you guys so you understand what this show is about, what we're going to be addressing moving forward. You, know, you see, each episode, we're going to be tapping into John's nearly, you know, over a decade worth of experience in criminal law. We're going to be learning a lot of, you know, the lessons that he and, and fun stories, if you will, you know, of the you know criminal cases that he's handled in the past. We're also going to be addressing some misconceptions surrounding criminal law, you know, the FAQs, uh, also any changes in criminal law, not only in the the greater Indianapolis area, which Razumich and Associates, you know, uh, serves on a regular basis, but also, you know, at the federal level, you know, countrywide law change as well. So new topics, each episode, criminal law related, and we're really looking forward uh, to getting started with today's conversation because we got some great topics lined up for you for today. So with that, let's go ahead and bring on really our star of the show, Mr. John Razumich. John, great to see you. How are you doing today? Hey, Ryan. Thanks. Uh, that's a that was a great introduction. I'm, I'm impressed <laughs> to hear from you too, and I, I hear from myself all the time. <laughs> well, hey, this show's a long time coming, so it's it's good to have you with us. I know we've been wanting to launch this show and uh, you know tap into your experience, you know your dealings with the market there in Indianapolis and beyond. Um, that being said, you know I'd love to kind of kick things off today uh, and allow you know anybody that is with us here on the Facebook live stream joining us after the fact who may not know much about you or your or your firm specifically. I'd love to you know have you peel back the curtain a little bit, share a little bit of yourself, you know personally, professionally you know, what led you to Razumich and Associates today? Uh, you know, just kind of start with the basics, if you will. Sure. Um, very basic. I've, I've lived my entire life here in Indiana, most of it here in Indianapolis. Uh, so born and bred Hoosier. Um, I graduated from the Indiana University School of Law here in Indianapolis in uh, 2006. While I was at the law school, um, I had two different internships that I did. I worked with the Marion County Public Defender Agency, and I worked for a local uh, personal injury legend by the name of Stanley Kahn. Folks who have been in the Indianapolis area for a while uh, might remember Stanley from his uh, commercials back in the day. So when I got out of law school, I, I had two options. I could either uh, go the criminal route or I could go the personal injury route. Uh, the decision kind of got made for me. I, I did ask Mr. Khan about staying on full time, and he'd indicated there was not a spot for me at that time. So it looked like it was all about criminal law at that point. And um, when I was doing my internship with the public defender, one thing that I noticed that I really did not want to have happen is um, as soon as the new attorneys were sworn in, as soon as they were licensed, um, the, the, their supervisor and the PD would come by their office and drop off a banker's box full of files back when we had files for these things. And uh, they would say, congratulations, these are your cases for this afternoon. Uh, so realizing that that level of, uh, of, of busyness was not something I wanted at that point in time, I decided to take the genius step of going straight into private practice on my own. Uh, our doors officially opened on December 1st of 2006. And uh, we've been we've been doing uh, we've been doing this ever since then. It's it's been a great ride. Um, 
we have represented, as you mentioned in the introduction, we do represent people all throughout the state of Indiana. Our offices are located here in Indianapolis. This is kind of our home base. But I have been the attorney of record in, I, I think I'm up to 64 of Indiana's 92 counties. Wow. Um, yeah, we, we're very well traveled. Part of that part of that was because when you're young and you're starting out, you'll take whatever needs <laughs> sure. to happen. Uh, at this point in time, I, I actually don't mind it. We get called, we get called out all over the state because we have that reputation for getting the job done and getting it done well. And uh, you you learn a surprising amount of geography and and find all sorts of neat stuff driving all over the state like that. Sure, and you know, for anybody that searches your website, your company name, uh, you know, and just gets a sense about you guys as a whole as an entity, you guys do carry a reputation for getting the job done. Where does that stem from? You know, how did you guys come come about having you know developing that reputation? Where were there some cases kind of early on that maybe solidified that that uh, statewide reputation, if you will? I think it most mostly just comes from the fact that I'm too stubborn to give up. I think is the way that we go. Um, the, the the tagline for the law firm is "Lawyers Ready to Fight." That's it's a great motto, but it's also very true to life. We we fight tooth and nail. Um, there there are cases that I've worked on that we've picked up that you know they may have been through two or three other attorneys before they reached us, and I was the one that. Um, was just pull bullheaded, bullheaded or pigheaded enough to to not back down, and um, that that you know people people appreciate that if you're willing to go that extra mile for them, if you're willing to basically put your foot down and say no, you know, mm-hmm. you know I don't care that you say that this is what's supposed to happen just because you say that doesn't mean you get it, you know, prove it in court if you have to. We right, um, you yeah, know, so we we had a reputation very early on as as being uh, trial hawks. We did a mm-hmm. we did a lot more jury trials and most private attorneys would early in my career just because uh, someone had to do them. Someone had to fight. Yeah. Well, I guess I voted. <laughs> I love that you mentioned those early jury trials because, hey, that's, you know, that's the courtroom drama. That's what people are used to, you know, in, in the media or on the news or movies, whatever they're consuming. But uh, and, and we're going to touch base on a few of you know those jury trials and your dealings throughout you know over a decade worth of experience you know in the courtroom fighting those battles uh, and I'm excited for those conversations to come today though uh, we've got a, a you know f- two fun themes that we're going to be diving into you know John and I know John throughout the area you're also you're really known as Jack to most uh, so uh, you know I'll go ahead and refer to you as Jack you know that's that's what most know you as um, but you know just obviously on the front doors of the uh, the firm you have you know your four name in John. But that being said, Jack, for to get really to get into the meat and potatoes of our conversation today, the first of the two themes that we wanted to capture today uh, was the idea of, you know, a fast and speedy trial, really like what that means, the definition behind it. Uh, and then we're going to kind of dive into the weeds of it a little bit, if you will. Uh, but for those that think they have an understanding on what a fast and speedy trial is, what does that look like? Um, you know, where did it start? You know, how did we get here today with this phrase, a fast and speedy trial? Well, fast and speedy trials are definitely kind of a hot topic right now, as as you're aware, and as everyone who's listening to this live, and anyone who might listen to this uh, in the immediate future, um, we kind of had a lost year in 2020 because of the the coronavirus shutdowns and. The problem that the criminal justice system runs into is, unfortunately, it's not like crime stopped. Uh, you know, you, we, we still had people who were accused of breaking law, who are still being arrested, who are still being processed. And those people have a right under uh, the U.S. Constitution, as well as various state constitutions, 
to have their cases heard. Um, the concept of what we refer to as a fast and speedy trial, that comes from the Sixth Amendment to the United States Constitution, where it, it starts at the beginning. It says, in all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury, and then it, it goes on from there. So the language of a fast and speedy trial is contained right there in the Sixth Amendment. That's where we get that language from. Uh the history of the development of the fast and speedy trial, that's where things get really interesting on this because what we would consider today to be a fast and speedy trial and how the framework of that is set up would have been completely unheard of or, or completely foreign to the, the framers of the Constitution, the way, the way that it developed and the way that we understand it now with the current modern legal framework. Right, right. So let's dive into that. You know, what, you know, what really are the, the controlling, you know, factors with what makes a, you know, a trial fast and speedy or, or watching that timeline kind of grow uh, to where we are today? What are some of those controlling factors that, you know, inf influence the amount of time a trial takes to be done? Sure. Generally speaking, again, going back to the way that that things were when the the Sixth Amendment was ratified in, uh, I think it was 1791. My, my math might be wrong on that one. So anyone who's in the comments, don't crucify me on that one. <laughs> um, when, when the Sixth Amendment was ratified, um, of course, the United States brought our, our trial traditions, our common law traditions over from England, which included the concept of a trial by jury and that trial being public that goes back to the Magna Carta. So when the amendment was ratified here in the United States, trials moved extremely quickly. Uh, what would happen is you would arrest somebody, um, you would try them within 30 days, if even that, and then depending on the outcome, you might even have yourself a hanging in the back courtyard that afternoon. So the concept of what a fast and speedy trial was, um, it wasn't spelled out because it was just kind of understood by the people who wrote the amendment. And if you look at the history of, of trials in this country, um, even some really big ones just move very quickly. So for example, the, the trial of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, who were accused of being communist spies in the 1950s, uh, they were indicted on August 17th of 1950, and their trial started on March 6th of 1951. So that's just over six months for a major espionage trial. Mm -hmm. uh, Sam Shepard, which was a very famous case out in California in the 1950s, is actually the basis for the television show and the movie The Fugitive. Uh, Sam Shepard was arrested on July 4th of 1954, and his trial started 106 days later on October 18 in 1954. And what made his case really interesting is they made, you know, they made that case go very quickly as far as the time is concerned. Mm -hmm. And the verdict took 60 days. The trial itself was 60 days. So the trial wow. was fast in the concept. They brought it to trial, but it took a while. I, sure. I think the fastest trial that I remember seeing in, in some of the research that I was doing to kind of prepare for today's episode, um, if anyone has seen the, the Angelina Jolie movie, uh, The Changeling, that's actually based off of a real case out of California. That's based off of a case called the Wineville Chicken Coop Murders. The uh, defendant in that case was arrested uh, and, and brought before a judge on uh, November 30th of 1928. His trial 
which was a 20 murder trial indictment. He was accused of murdering 20 people. Um, His trial started on January 13th, 1929. So we're, we're talking like barely a month and a half to get a 20 murder indictment going on that. So there's your fast speed trial. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, so when you look at like a more high profile case than Jack, you know, like for example, the OJ Simpson trial, that one, I mean, that's, it's a storybook trial, if you will. Where did that fall in the realm of, you know, fast and speedies? The O.J. Simpson trial um, it did move remarkably fast. It, mm-hmm. it took place about seven months after um, his his arraignment in front of the judge. He asserted his right to a fast and speedy trial at his arraignment, and that'll be one of the things that we kind of talk about as we discuss the development of it. Um, his trial itself, it's, it, it's definitely one for the books. Um, his trial, he was brought to trial uh, approximately seven months after the arraignment. Um, the trial itself, if you can remember this, for people who remember that were there, for people who were learning about this after the fact, his trial took 10 months to be done. So that was that was very consuming. The, the concept of what represents a fast and speedy trial is how fast you actually get to the concept of the trial, not how long the trial itself actually takes. Um I guess the concept generally, the way the law looks at it is when did you start the trial versus, you know, when was it done? The trials take as long as they take mm-hmm. once they're started. It's just a matter of the, the fast and speedy is, is a function of when the trial is actually began. That's a really important point there to mention, because I think yeah you can get lost in the weeds of, well, fast and speedy trial should be how long the trial takes, you know, from start to finish. The day I was arrested to the day, you know, a, a verdict is read. It's not. It is, in fact, you know, that moment to when, you know, the arrest takes place leading to the trial beginning itself. I'm correct in, in you know, kind of echoing you in that. Um, right. So kind of moving in then, you know, in noticing uh, you you outline and one thing we wanted to talk about is this idea of a of a balancing test a four part balancing test when it comes to these you know fair and speedy trials could you walk us through what this process is sure um like i mentioned there was not a lot of uh, case law and and for for our listeners who are not familiar with uh, the way the legal system works um case law is the shorthand term that attorneys use for decisions that are made by appellate courts so uh, a decision from a state appellate court or a state supreme court or the supreme court of the united states they hand down their decisions are referred to as attorneys by as case law and that case law is it's precedential it's binding it tells um it tells future attorneys future judges how they're supposed to approach certain issues because the fast and speed, because the concept of what a fast and speedy trial was wasn't defined at the time of ratification, and it was one of those things that that people just understood. And and again, remember we were just talking about cases in the 1950s, where from the date of the arrest to the day of the trial happening, we're still talking about a six month time period. There wasn't a lot of case law on the issue of what a fast and speedy trial actually was, so that we didn't have a definitive definition. That changed in 1972. In 1972, the Supreme Court of the United States decided a case uh, called Barker versus Wingo. And and like a lot of cases that do end up before the Supreme Court, it was definitely a tragic set of circumstances. Uh, The state of Kentucky 
ended up bringing uh, murder charges against a defendant by the name of Willie Barker for the double homicide of an elderly couple. Uh, the couple was murdered on July 20th, 1958. Mr. Barker was uh, picked up not long afterwards. Uh, over the course of Mr. Barker's case, there were a total of 16 continuances filed by the state of Kentucky. Um, effectively, the state of Kentucky thought that the co-defendant had an easier case for the state to proceed with. So they wanted to focus their efforts on trying the co-defendant's case. And uh, Mr. Barker, of course, he's just sort of sitting in jail uh, during all that time. Mr. Barker's case finally came to trial on October 9 of 1963, so five years after he's arrested. So he's sitting in a county jail for five years while all this is going on. And for the first time, the Supreme Court of the United States decided what are the boundaries, what helps to decide what a fast and speedy trial is. Mm -hmm. And the test that they came up with, it's referred to as the Barker test. That's another thing we tend to do in the law is we, we shorthand decisions based off of whatever the name of the case is. Uh, right. So the Barker test is what the courts have used for the purposes of determining whether or not a fast and speedy trial has, has been violated. And the Barker test involves a, a four-part determination. Uh, the first determination they look at is how long is the delay? So if there's a delay between the time that someone is arrested or the time that someone is indicted and their case going to trial, how long is that delay? Uh, mm -hmm. Obviously, a longer delay between arrest and trial, that's going to make it seem very much like there is a fast and speedy trial violation. Right. The second thing they look at is they look at the reason for the delay. And, and the delays can be for a variety of different reasons. One of the places where you started really seeing delays was coincidentally in the 1970s and the 1980s with the advent of more scientific juries. Um, for example, DNA evidence, which that really wasn't there in the 1970s, that started to become more of a thing in the 1980s and, and onwards. You can't just snap your finger and, and magic that up. I, I wish that life was like television, but it's not. So those things take time to get done. Those cause delays. Um, other delays that can be caused are if a defendant uh, goes on the lamb. You know, people do jump bail. Um, you, you know, you can't you can't refuse to show up to court and then right. argue, hey, you didn't bring me to trial within a specific time period. You know, and, and that, that'll hold true. Like if you have, like, let's say that you have a case in Indiana, you get released on bail in Indiana and you go break the law in Illinois and Illinois is sitting on you, you know, you're now, you, you can't come back and say, Hey, Indiana, you know, you know right. where I am. That's on you. Exactly. <laughs> um, other delays that we'll usually see if a witness is unavailable for some reason, but again, they're looking at the specific cause that the witness is unavailable. If the witness is unavailable because they're in the hospital having surgery, um, mm. that's going to be considered to be more flexible than if the witness just decides not to show up for trial because it's too sure. complicated. Sure. Uh, we, we had a case by, by ironic coincidence. Um, we were originally set to be in trial tomorrow morning and that case ended up getting dismissed, not on fast and speedy grounds. It got dismissed by the state for failure to cooperate. Uh, but the, the main witness that the state was relying on was no longer in the state of Indiana and, and made it very clear that they weren't interested in coming back. So uh, any delay that would have been caused by that would have counted against the state not and been a factor in determining whether or not there was a fast and speedy trial violation. Interesting. 
Hmm. So the the other the other two things they look at to determine whether or not there's a fast and speedy trial violation. This is probably the most important one out of the four tests, which is how and when the defendant asserted their right to a fast and speedy trial. The majority of rights um, that are guaranteed to us by the Constitution of Indiana and the Constitution of the United States, there's always a discussion about the concept of these rights are inalienable or these rights are are inherent. The reality of the matter is most rights are passive. If, If you don't affirmatively say, hey, I have a right to this and I want this, a lot of times the court's unfortunately going to say, well, you didn't actually say anything about exercising mm. your rights. And, and and that comes up in criminal cases very regularly. We see it a lot of times when it comes up with um, issues like asserting your right to remain silent or demanding the right to speak to an attorney. That has also unfortunately spilled over to the concept of asserting your right to fast and speedy trial. So you have to actually say, I want a fast and speedy trial. And, and different jurisdictions will approach that differently. Um, Indiana, for example, and we'll talk about how Indiana approaches this here in a few moments. Indiana starts the fast and speedy trial clock from the day that you say, I want a fast and speedy trial. Mm-hmm. Um, as soon as you assert that, you go on the fast and speedy clock. If you don't assert that, you're just in the, uh, I, I guess, general population clock, for lack of a better way of putting it. And uh, the final thing that, that the court came up with in the Barker test that they look at is the degree of prejudice that's caused the defendant by the delay. And what that means is, you know, how, what, at what level or at what severity was the defendant prejudiced by the delay? So if the delay, for example, going back again to the situation where you have a witness who isn't available for a particular trial date, like let's say, um, you know, let's say they had a, a death in the family or a medical emergency or something like that. They're not available to come to the trial and the court continues the trial for 30 days. Um, the amount of prejudice that a person might suffer in that 30 days is a lot less than the prejudice that a person might suffer if the cases continue for a longer period of time. That right there has been the biggest issue that we've been dealing with in the post-COVID realm mm. because we have people who have been waiting on their cases coming to trial for over a year at this point in time. Mm. Um, there was there was one case that we worked on uh, last month where, um, a- again, the similar situation, They the, the state dismissed it because they had lost track of the witnesses because a lot of people did move around during COVID mm-hmm. for one reason or another. Right. Um, so they had to dismiss the case. But he was charged in March of 2020, um, which, as as we all know, was, was the last of what we refer to as the before times. Mm-hmm. Uh, every single opportunity he had to assert his right to trial he got moved for one reason or another. Either mm-hmm. either there were other trials that were happening um, and we couldn't accommodate that or the we were still closed because of the health pandemic. Mm-hmm. And his case was not dismissed until, his case was dismissed in June. So that's, that's 16 months, 16 months of having wow. felony charges hanging over their head. Uh, it's, it's pretty difficult to do anything with an open criminal case. Yeah. Um, Renters don't want to rent to you because they think, well, this person is accused right. of a crime. Um, it's a you know, effect. first of all, that means yeah, they, that makes them a bad person. Also, 
they may not be able to pay their rent. Jobs don't want to hire you for the same reason. So mm-hmm. those are things that the court looks at to determine how much prejudice is there. So shorter yeah. continuance is usually not that much of a prejudice. A longer one, the the impact is going to be a lot heavier on that. Sure. So so that's really, you know, that's really interesting. You know, the the Barker test, if you will, like looking at these four, you know, these four balancing test measurements. Then you know, things kind of shifted and we got more of an actual direction when it comes to this, you know, fast and speedy trial, um, you know, process when looking at the speedy trial act of 1974, I want you to kind of give us a little bit of an overview on that, Jack, and, and how that is, you know, being, you know, how it comes into play today with the regular dealings, you know, even the, you know, your, your case that you just mentioned, you know, when, you know, throughout the the COVID-19 pandemic. Right. The the federal the, the Fast Speedy Trial Act in 1974, it's a federal statute. Um, once the – what you'll what you find the way the law works a lot, especially in the area of criminal law, it doesn't seem to happen in other areas, but we, we seem to get special treatment from the United States Congress. Um, anytime that the Supreme Court makes a decision that has an impact on the way criminal procedure goes – Congress usually steps in and decides that it wants to put its own two cents in. And and the way that they did this is with the as far as fast and speedy trials are concerned is they passed the uh, Speedy Trial Act of 1974. And what that does is that effectively establishes what timelines cases need to be tried in. And it's it's important to note for the purposes of this discussion uh, for anyone who's listening. The Speedy Trial Act of 1974, which is still in effect, it was actually amended uh, a few years later in 1979. That is a federal statute that applies to federal cases only. A lot of state Uh. courts and a lot of state laws um, were passed that mimicked the federal rules of procedure, including the Federal Speedy Trial Act of 1974. But the specific timelines that are set in the federal act only apply to the federal government. And the big one that the Federal Speedy Trial Act has is that if you are charged in a federal court, your case needs to be brought to trial within 70 days of your indictment, which is the formal way that they charge you in federal court, or your first appearance before a federal judge, whichever is later. So if you're indicted on January 1st, but you're not brought before a judge before February 1st, February 1st is going to be the start clock. and, and the reverse is true also. If you were arrested on January 1st and they realize, hey, we really want to charge this person and they didn't file the indictment until February 1st, uh, that's going to be your start date on that. And um, I say it's 70 days, uh, but just like anything in the law, there's all sorts of loopholes that go into right. that. Right. The first major loophole is any time that a motion or a um, an appeals determination is what's referred to as under consideration. That doesn't count towards those seventy days. Okay. So you, you know you had your arraignment, you've appeared before the judge. That clock starts mm-hmm. ticking, but pretty quickly your attorney files a motion to suppress. Again, that's not something that's going to be decided right away. The court has to accept briefings on it. They have to hold a hearing. Right. They have to make a determination. From the day that you file that motion to suppress to the day that the judge rules on it, that time doesn't count. And if that time's Mm -hmm. 30 days, that 30 days doesn't count towards that 70-day time period. Um, Same situation if for whatever reason you had a case that was up on appeal. Um, That's not very common in federal courts. In state courts, we have what are referred to as interlocutory appeals. That time would not count towards uh, towards that. And an, an interlocutory appeal... 
uh, for the benefit of anyone listening, that is a, a line jump appeal, for lack of a better way to be putting it. Um, if you have something that would be dispositive, like a motion to suppress, uh, and the trial, trial court rules one way, uh, either party can request that the court certify the question, and it goes up to the Court of Appeals for a very limited appellate decision on that issue and that issue alone. Uh, that time would not count against the state calculation for your fast and speedy trial. Uh, it would not take. It, it would not count against the federal determination either. But again, that's extremely rare in the federal system. Um, and then the final thing that that mm -hmm. does not count towards those seventy days. Uh, part of a judge's job in these determinations is to make the balancing test of what are the ends of justice, what what is the actual justice that we're trying to hit versus uh, what are the interests in both the public and the defendant having that fast and speedy trial. If the court determines that the ends of justice are met by um, continuing that case, that can, that can extend that 70-day time period, uh, whether the defendant likes it or not. So that was, in the federal system at least, that was usually the catch-all provision. That's why you would have that situation of, of those continuances. Um, but that's, that's the way the federal government looks at right. it. And that's how the statute works. Gotcha. So, I mean, great information for us to have, you know, when looking at the federal side of things, your firm specifically, Jack, you guys look at a lot of cases that serve, uh, the greater Indianapolis area specifically, or the, really the state of Indiana. Mm -hmm. Talk to me a little bit about how fast and speedy trials work throughout the state specifically. Sure. The State fast and speedy trial, um, we have our constitutional right to a fast and speedy trial under the laws of Indiana are in Article 1, Section 12 of uh, the Indiana State Constitution, which states that uh, all courts shall be open and every person for injury done to him in his person, property, or reputation shall have remedy by due course of law. Justice shall be administered freely and without prejudice, completely and without denial, speedily and without delay. So that's the Indiana version of the Sixth Amendment. Mm -hmm. Procedurally, we have uh, what are referred to as the Indiana Rules of Criminal Procedure. Um, much like with the federal statutes that came about in the 1970s, the Indiana State Supreme Court commissioned a study, and they attempted to codify a lot of those rules that were just kind of all over creation uh, sure. back in the before times. So starting in the 1970s, those rules were all put together in the Indiana Rules of, of Trial Procedure. There are civil rules mm -hmm. of procedure, and there are criminal rules of procedure. The criminal rules of procedure attempt to establish the framework for how quickly trials should or should not happen, uh, very similarly to the way that the Speedy Trial Act of 1974 did. In Indiana, the procedural rule is Indiana, Indiana Criminal Rule 4, which has three different subsections to it. Uh, your first subsection, which is uh, Trial Rule 4A, holds that a person who is incarcerated, like they, they are being held pending their trial, they cannot be held for more than 180 days without their case going to trial. Trial rule 4B is the fast and speedy trial rule. 4B says that if you have asserted your right to a fast and speedy trial, uh, they have to hold your trial within 70 days of you asserting that right. And that goes back to what we had talked about before with regards to the concept of you have to actually assert right. the right for it to matter. And right. then uh, trial rule 4C is kind of the catch-all for everybody else. 
Mm-hmm. It says that if you're not in custody, if you're not being held in jail, you have to be brought to trial within 365 days of your initial hearing, or the case can be dismissed for uh, failure to adhere to the fast and speedy trial rules. And that's well, and the same like you said, that's the catch-all. You know, in case yeah. you don't enact that, you know, hey, I want a fast and speedy trial. That that then you know accelerates that timeline to the 70 day timeline. You know, if you don't invoke that, it's 365 day timeline. Am I correct in saying that? Yes and no. As long as you're okay. it, the 365 days is if you're not in jail. Okay. Um, got it. Got it. It's 180 days if you're in jail. And it's a, I, I have had this happen to me before. And you would think that you would never want to object to your clients being released from jail. Uh, <laughs> but we legitimately, we had a situation where, uh, they could not bring my client to trial within his fast and speedy deadline. And what the state did is the state moved to release him on his own recognizance, which basically kicked it from 70 days to 365 days. Mm. So there's there's a lot of maneuvering on that. Um, sure. A lot of the same a lot of the same loopholes in the federal system will apply with the state system as well. If there's a continuance that's requested by your defense attorney, that's considered to be a delay that's attributable to you. So that time doesn't count towards your fast and speedy trial time. Sure. Uh, if witnesses are unavailable, things of that nature, those are all things mm-hmm. that, that don't apply to those time limits. And Jack, uh, one question that just popped in my head was, you know, how does the state of Indiana go about assuming, uh, or not assuming rather, but how do they go about regulating which case takes priority? You know, the, the power rankings, if you will, of of deciding which you know which case enters trial before another given case. Generally speaking, um, they go off of the concept of of kind of that ranking in the ABC. Uh, the first thing they look at is, is this person in jail and have they asserted a fast and speedy trial right? So if that person has made that fast and speedy assertion, they are at the top of the list. Um, they will sometimes come into conflict with other people who have asserted their fast and speedy trial right. And then you're, you're dealing with kind of jockeying for position over which of those cases is now the oldest. After that, you go with who has been in jail the longest. And then after that, you get to everybody else who's not in jail and you determine which of those cases is the oldest. So a a lot of it will determine very heavily on who's in jail, who's not in jail, who has the oldest case. Mm -hmm. Uh, The rule does allow for a trial court judge to prioritize someone who's not in jail, who just has an old case over Mm -hmm. someone who is in jail. So the judge does have that discretion. And we've started to see judges, certainly here in Indianapolis, I I would imagine that some of the other larger areas like Crown Point or Evansville or uh, Fort Wayne are are probably dealing with similar situations where you have a lot of people who have old cases that these cases need to be done. Uh, Otherwise, you're going to get years and years on. And and the court can the court does have the authority to prioritize that. And Mm -hmm. and we're starting to see that happen a little bit more often. Well, I mean, I appreciate you answering that question. And and one other really last point when it comes to the fair and speedy trial, specifically within Indiana, that I know we wanted to touch on today was this idea of, you know, independent constitutional, you know, analysis. I you had mentioned earlier that Indiana typically, you know, is utilizing the the Barker test when it comes to somebody enacting their right to a fair and speedy trial. Talk to us a little bit about what this independent constitutional analysis looked like and where maybe Indiana may have changed their game somewhere along the way in terms of, of how they utilize the Barker test or maybe something else. Sure. The uh, the short answer is we don't know. 
Uh, <laughs> this what, is always fun. <laughs> it, it's yeah, that's why it's exciting. What happened uh, recently, and this this is kind of a, a pretty big shift in the in the Indiana legal landscape for criminal law. Uh, back on December twenty first of twenty twenty, so uh, about that's what nine nine ish months ago. The Indiana Supreme Court decided a uh, fast and speedy trial case called um, Watson versus State. And what the Watson case involved, it involved a person who had filed a, a legal proceeding as referred to as a post-conviction relief petition. Uh, very quickly, that is a motion that people will file after they're incarcerated that, that alleges that um, their incarceration is is in violation of the state or federal constitutions for one reason or another. That case involved uh, a PCR that took something in the area of around six years, I think, to get to trial. Um, so very similar to the Barker test, you've got a, you've got a very long time period with multiple continuances, a lot of which were by the state of Indiana, and it went before the Indiana Supreme Court on the basis of does this violate. Uh, Mr. Watson's fast and speedy trial rights. And in a footnote, so not even in the main decision itself, in a footnote, the uh, the Chief Justice of Indiana indicated that, hey, we're deciding this under uh, federal fast and speedy trial rules using the Barker test, but just so everybody knows, there's an independent analysis that we could always do under Article 1, Section 12, because the Sixth Amendment guarantees a right Whereas Article 1, Section 12 basically mandates a directive. You shall give them a fast and speedy trial. Um, So what that means, none of us know yet. Uh, It it, it sounds like we've had all the time in the world to figure this out because that happened (laughs) in October last year. Uh, It doesn't. Cases take a while to work up the the appeals process. Uh, And I'm sure we'll go over that in in a future episode, how long that process actually takes. But as Mm -hmm. of right now, to the best of my knowledge, I don't think that any case has come up that's addressed that situation um, in the appeals process. I, I'll, I'll be very interested to see how that plays out. I know a lot of the trial court judges, uh, when that decision came down, um, spent a lot of time groaning <laughs> because I'm sure. all, of, all of a sudden there's now more work for them. And mm-hmm. uh, it'll be interesting to see how that, how that plays out. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jack, I want to thank you for kind of giving us an overview really on fast and speedy trials, not only at the federal level, but also the Indiana level. I'm sure this is a topic that is going to find its way back into our conversations on future episodes. But, you know, while I've got you here, I also want to pivot and and kind of make our way into really our second theme, our second conversation uh, for our inaugural episode today. And that's surrounding the idea of forfeitures. Uh, You know, there's a really big case, uh, the Tyson Tim's case, that is, that we're going to get into in a moment. But for those that are with us, us, you know, that aren't really familiar with forfeitures as a whole, could you kind of give us that broad overview and definition on what a forfeiture is? Sure. Forfeiture is, well, a fire ban would say that it was legalized theft. Uh, realistically, what it is, it's it's an ass, it, it's a tool that law enforcement officers can use at both the state and federal level to take what would otherwise be legally held property if they believe that either the property was used in the commission of a crime or the property was purchased with the proceeds of the commission of a crime. The idea is, like a lot of laws, the best intention of the law was that we don't want people breaking the law and then profiting by it. And forfeiture is one of those things that it's, it's, it's had its ups and downs over the years. 
the concept of what forfeiture is, uh, it actually dates back to English maritime law from the 1600s. That, that's kind of because, again, remember, we brought all of our common law traditions, all of our legal systems over from uh, from Great Britain after Independence Day. Um, so we brought the concept of forfeiture with us also. And in the 1600s, what would happen is if a ship was importing or exporting goods out of uh, ports of Great Britain, they passed a law that said you have to fly the Union Jack, you have to fly the British standard. And if you refuse to do that, the British government could just seize the ship and its cargo, which seems very excessive even today. But, you know, it's the 1700s what you, or 1600s. What are you going to do about it? Um, when we brought the concept of forfeiture over to the United States, when we were establishing uh, how our own judicial framework would go, um, it was primarily used during the Prohibition era. So from the 1920s to the 1930s, what would happen is if federal agents um, would bust up a bootlegging operation, uh, they would take you know money, cars, lots and lots of firearms, anything else that the bootleggers had with them, those would be considered forfeited. There was a legal proceeding that went through it, um, which is just a reminder to everyone that Uncle Sam doesn't care what you do as long as they're getting their cut out of it, because that's how they got Capone during Prohibition also. Right. <laughs> um, after it's it, the history, the history of forfeiture, though, after 1933 and after the re repeal of Prohibition, it basically dropped down to nothing. Interesting. Uh, forfeiture was incredibly rare, and it stayed that way for about four decades. And when we got to the war on drugs in the 1970s, that's when the forfeitures really started up again. Because in a, much like with prohibition, the concept was we want to tra we want to combat the trafficking, we want to combat these people who are selling drugs and getting the profits out of it. And that's when you started to see forfeitures really skyrocket. And mm -hmm. Even beyond that, they really, really skyrocketed after the passage of the Comprehensive Crime Control Act of 1984, which was a statute that said, okay, uh, federal agents, state agents, you can work together on these forfeiture actions and you can share money, you can share resources, you can share you know, whatever it is that you take. And during the timeline between 1985 and 1983, all various levels of government, uh, state state law enforcement officers, federal law enforcement officers, they seized three billion dollars in assets wow. just oh, during that twelve billion. year period, and it, it's only gone up from there. It's not gone down any. So Man. you know, you can imagine how that is, and that's three billion dollars in like nineteen eighties money. So right, you know, right. just that for inflation, right there. Jeez. So, yeah, it's it's big business for the government. Yeah, absolutely. It's extremely advantageous for them to ramp back, you know, ramp those efforts back up. You know, the war on drugs really helped them in a way, um, you know, in terms of generating a payday for the federal government. But let's let's dive into this, the, the case of Tyson Timms and, and, and the impact that this really had on forfeitures as a whole, because it did it really did set a precedent. Um, and I'd love I'd love for you to kind of, uh, you know, this was a case that, you know, just in prepping for our, our show today that I wasn't necessarily familiar with. I would say the layman typically isn't. Uh, so give us a little bit of an education on this case, particularly and what it meant for forfeitures as a whole. Sure. The, the Tyson Timms case is extremely important for forfeitures because um, the Timms case incorporated the prohibition of the Eighth Amendment against excessive fines to state forfeiture actions. Um, a, a great trivia point that a lot of people who don't work in the legal field aren't aware of, 
the Bill of Rights technically only applies to the U.S. government. It only applies to the federal government. Over the years, uh, since the passage of the 14th Amendment, especially during the, the, the early part of the 20th century, um, the Supreme Court of the United States would use the due process amendment of the due process clause of the 14th Amendment to apply the protections of the Bill of Rights to citizens of the several states. That's a, that's a legal process that's referred to as incorporation. Not every amendment has actually been incorporated. There are still some amendments that are not incorporated to the uh, to the states. A great example right now, uh, getting back to the Sixth Amendment, I know that we talked about how the, the fastest speedy trial is in the Sixth Amendment. The Sixth Amendment also guarantees the right to counsel. That technically has not been incorporated to the several states. Um, I, I'm very proud to say that no state, as far as I'm aware, deny anybody the right to counsel. Uh, but that amendment has not, that clause has technically not been applied. Same situations with what's referred to as the excessive fines prohibition of the Eighth Amendment. Uh, back in 1993, the Supreme Court decided that in the case of Austin versus United States, that the Eighth Amendment controlled forfeiture actions at the federal level, but there was not a situation that applied forfeiture law and the Eighth Amendment protection against excessive fines until the Tyson Timms case in 2019. Mm -hmm. And what happened with the Tim's case, um, it, it's a very sad situation overall, the background of it. Uh, in 2012, Tyson Tim's father passed away unexpectedly and left his son a as the beneficiary of his life insurance policy. So he received a large sum of money. Uh, he took $42,000 of that money and he bought himself a brand new 2013 Land Rover. Um, so he's, he's got a brand new car purchased with, you know, proceeds from his father's life insurance policy. Um, Tyson also had a bit of a problem in that he had a very serious drug addiction. He was, he was one of the thousands of people in this country that struggle with drug addiction, uh, and will do a lot of things for the purposes of feeding that drug habit. Sure. And in Tim's case, because the Land Rover was his transportation, that was his car, that was his vehicle. He would use the Land Rover for the purposes of going to places and buying drugs. And it, that escalated and he started using the Land Rover to take himself to places to sell drugs. And what ended up happening is in May, uh, on May 6th of 2013, uh, Tyson was arrested by undercover officers in uh, Grant County, Indiana for selling $225 worth of heroin. So he was arrested and he was charged with a class B felony offense mm -hmm. and the state of indiana seized his land rover and in august of 2013 they filed a forfeiture action arguing that this land rover was in inherently and intrinsically linked with the crime of dealing heroin it falls under the forfeiture statute and we are going to seize that and take that car away from him mm -hmm. um what ended up happening with Tyson's case is, is, is Tyson Timms did enter into a plea of guilty. It's not like he, it, it's not like he was found not guilty at this offense. He did enter into a plea of guilty. Uh, he pleaded guilty to the crime of dealing in a narcotic. He was sentenced to the minimum six year term of imprisonment, five years of which was suspended. So he was basically time served by the time his case played out. And he had five years that were supervised on probation. During all this time, he's still trying to get his car back. 
because this is his only car. This is this is how he's going to get to probation appointments. This is how he's going to get to work. This is mm. how he's going to get to rehab. And mm. the state of Indiana is has taken it. Now, again, remember, this is a $42,000 car that was purchased with the proceeds of his father's life insurance. So it, it's right. not a car that was purchased with drug money. Right. It's not it's not a car that was purchased with the intention of going and doing uh, selling drugs, but it was linked, uh, you know, it, it was linked. linked. It, exactly. It, it was linked to it. Uh-huh. And, and that's what the state of our, that's what the state of Indiana's argument was. Uh, Tyson's argument was that the maximum fine that could be imposed for the crime that I was convicted of is $10,000, which is that's true for any felony in the state of Indiana. The, the maximum fine in the state of Indiana for any felony offenses is $10,000. So his argument was you are seizing an asset that is tangentially linked to this crime that is worth four times what the maximum fine is, mm. and that's unfair. And uh, what happened with this case, the, the, the trial court agreed. Um, the, the trial court agreed and said, okay, yeah, we agree with you. This is, this is excessive. No. The Indiana mm-hmm. Court of Appeals agreed and said that seems excessive and it's not an abuse of discretion for the judge, so no. It got to the Indiana Supreme Court, and the Indiana Supreme Court said, like, well, based off the way the statute is written, it's perfectly legal, and sorry, the car is gone. Mm. Um, what Tim's, what Tyson did at that point in time, um, Tyson filed what's referred to as a writ of certiori. He asked the Supreme Court of the United States to review this case, arguing that the prohibition of excessive fines that he had the right that, that was guaranteed to him as a citizen of the United States, that the state of Indiana was violating that right. And in an issue of first impression, the Supreme Court of the United States actually took that case up and uh, heard the case, and it was. It, it did not go well for the state of Indiana is, is perhaps the polite way of phrasing it. <laughs> so, so yeah, walk, walk me through that. What was the repercussions of that? Sure. Um, it, it, they've amended it since the, 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 the Indiana general assembly has amended the forfeiture statute since mm-hmm. the, the Tim's case was decided uh, at the Supreme court level. But at the time that the case made it before the Supreme Court of the United States, the way Indiana's forfeiture statute was written, if you wanted to interpret it broadly, um, it allowed for the state to seize any crime, that any property that was in any way, shape, or form connected with any violation of the law. Mm. And Indiana's Solicitor General, um, who had to argue the case before the Supreme Court, it, it was made extremely uncomfortable by Justice Breyer who uh, at one point in time asked him if he thought that it was both permissive under Indiana law and reasonable under Indiana law that a person who was pulled over for speeding, if they were driving a a high-end luxury vehicle like a a Bugatti or a Ferrari or a Lamborghini, if the statute allowed for the state of Indiana to seize his car as a result of that speeding violation. Mm -hmm. And um, you know what? I'll – I'll give him credit. They, there's, you know, as as lawyers and as attorneys, we are often called on to just basically put our foot down and, and try to keep as straight a face as humanly possible right. when a judge is asking his questions. To his credit, the Indiana Solicitor General said, "Yes, Your Honor, that is absolutely 100% appropriate under Indiana statute." Wow, it didn't go well. <laughs> so, I can imagine so. Oh man. Uh, 
the the Supreme Court ended up unanimously ruling that um, the excessive fines clause of the Eighth Amendment does apply through this, to the state. So this was this is kind of a landmark decision. It's a very right. big decision uh, that says that an individual state, regardless of whatever their forfeiture statute does or doesn't say. Um, the excessive fines clause of the Eighth Amendment now applies to them at the state level, just like it would in the federal level. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they unanimously ruled that. They unanimously ruled that the Indiana courts or the Indiana Supreme Court specifically did not take that into account with their decision and uh, kicked it back to the Indiana Supreme Court for a new decision based off of the Supreme Court's reasoning on it. So the Supreme Court said, you have to consider this. Indiana, go do your homework over again and tell us what you think after you consider that. So they kicked it back to the Indiana Supreme Court. The Uh Indiana Supreme Court made a decision at that point. So walk me through that final decision. I mean, obviously, there's been some landmark discussions and conversations along the way. Uh, The Tim's case in the background, you know, a lot of chatter from that. Walk me through what their ultimate decision was when it came to forfeitures. What ended up happening is since Indiana now had a um, new framework that was given to them by the Supreme Court of the United States, mm-hmm. they came up with a, a two-part test to determine whether or not um, the forfeiture represented an excessive fine or penalty. Uh, and that two-part test, the first part that they looked at was, is the item seized the actual means by which a crime was committed? So, for example, in in Tyson's case, he, and, and no one denied this, Tyson didn't deny this himself either. Um, in Tyson's case, what happened is, you know, that vehicle was absolutely the actual means that the dealing offense happened in. Um, the dealing offense was, you know, he, he took the car to do the deal. He did the deal in the car. The car is definitely the actual means. But what that would allow is in future cases, if, you know, it, it's possible that if you happen to live in a home, but you leave the home to go do a drug deal, you may not be able to seize the home anymore. So that's, that's part of the actual means test is like, is the property seized the actual means committing the crime? And the second part of that test that they announced is that they need to, you know, is is the loss of the forfeited property grossly disproportionate to the penalty for the crime committed? And, and what that means is, do the penalties that are imposed on the defendant by forfeiting the property, do they so exceed the penalty that has otherwise been imposed that it makes it manifestly unjust? Right. And the court made a determination that when you're looking at that second factor, you get three more factors to consider mm. because it, we, we as lawyers love nothing more than segmenting everything. <laughs> right, exactly. And, and that second factor, the three things that you're supposed to look at on that are uh, the harshness of the punishment – Uh, which basically means, again, how harshly are we going to punish this person by taking this property away from them? Sure. The severity of the offense generally, like how serious is this offense? Again, remember in Tyson's case, we're dealing with uh, selling $225 worth of heroin and the defendant's culpability, you know, how, how involved are they in this? You know, did they loan their car to somebody because they felt bad? Are they the one that are actually out doing it? Mm -hmm. Um, so that's what they were looking at. So, so the Supreme Court announces the Indiana Supreme Court announces this new two-part test to determine whether or not um, you know there's the the, the seizure of a vehicle is is 
um, grossly disproportionate or in violation of the Eighth Amendment of the Constitution of the United States. And what they do is they send it back to the original trial court at this point. Oh, man. So goes back there for another determination. And the trial court um the, the trial court at that point in time they go through they go through the entire analysis they go through the supreme court analysis they go mm -hmm. through the 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 u.s supreme court analysis so they've gone through two supreme court analysis and they find once again that seizing the land rover is grossly disproportionate to everything else that's there and once again they rule in favor of tyson tims wow so finally after all this time, it comes back to Tim's. He was he was in, in the right, if you will, throughout all this time. Not yet. <laughs> oh, there's a but wait. There's still more, as they say. <laughs> you would think so, at this point in time, because because we're we're now in 2021. This is right. This is now eight years after they tried to seize this car. Jeez. This is this is eight years and going all the way to the Supreme court of the United States and coming back down from the Supreme court of the United States. This case covered three different attorneys general of Indiana. That's how long wow. this case was going on. Wow. You'd think they would give up, but they didn't. So once again, it goes up to the Indiana Supreme court. And finally, after eight years on June 10th, of of 2021 the supreme court of indiana puts an end to it and says this is done and and the reason that the supreme court ruled the way that they did is what indiana wanted to do is indiana wanted to revisit the the two-part framework that the indiana supreme court just announced a few months earlier sure so what what Indiana what the Indiana Supreme Court basically says like you've given us no reason to overturn a ruling that we just made so no mm -hmm. that's it no more appeals you're done so Tyson Tim's finally got his Land Rover back um, <laughs> the case is finally closed eight years and and literally making history so yeah um, wow super interesting case funny to also you know when you look at the you know a vehicle of any caliber whether it's a land rover or you know, toyota camry i mean it's a depreciating asset so of course <laughs> overall oh, over all that time you know tyson gets his he gets his land rover back at a lesser value let's put it that way yeah. um but either way hopefully, yes. not with, hopefully not with over a thousand miles hundred thousand right miles right exactly <laughs> exactly but no landmark case for indiana and and honestly what is then looked at i'm sure by states all around the country and how to work with forfeitures and how other states like Indiana handled a, a bigger case of this magnitude because, you know, hey, it ended up back in Tyson Timms's possession. This was an instance where, you know, the defendant, you know, they won. They won after all of this went down. So really appreciate utilizing this this specific example to go through the forfeitures process because, uh, you know, it's a word that comes up. But to the layman, I think generating an understanding of what a forfeiture truly is takes a case like Tyson Tim's to really get to the the center of it, especially within Indiana as a whole. So, you know, so that kind of rounds out really our conversation, Jack, between between fast and speedy trials today, forfeitures and, and Tyson Tim's role within forfeitures as a whole in the state of Indiana. Um, you know, any any, you know, as we kind of bring our conversation to a head here today, uh, is there anything else in regards to these two themes, the fast and speedy trials, as well as forfeitures that maybe we left off the table? Anything else that you want to share with our audience before we say goodbye today? There's there's a concept that we want to get this done as quickly as possible, and, and I assure you, as your attorneys, we also want to get it done. 
but we also want to make sure that it's done correctly. Um, sure. Fast and speedy trials a lot of times don't work out as well for defendants as they might think they do. Um, there's only one me. I mean, I, I've, I've got a staff here and, and we do a very good job and we, we make sure that we are addressing our clients' concerns as quickly as possible. Um, but I don't have unfettered access to the police and to alleged victims like prosecutors do. Um, so as a result, it is harder for me to get that information to make sure that we are doing the case properly. Cause you, you don't get a do over mm -hmm. on a trial. If you, if you, if you insist on a fast and speedy trial and, um, it goes wrong, you don't get to do the trial over again the next day. You, you basically had your chance and done it. That's right. not to say that fast and speedy trials are never particularly good or particularly advantageous, but it's a very fact sensitive thing that you do want to make sure you're discussing with your attorney before mm -hmm. making any of those decisions. Uh, with regards to the forfeiture, there's only a couple of, of just kind of minor things that are left out. Um, unfortunately, most people who do find themselves dealing with forfeiture actions, the cost of having an attorney um, help them with that forfeiture is, is going to be outweighed with by whatever is forfeited. We see a lot of cases where um, someone has been arrested for either attempting to purchase or attempting to sell drugs, and they'll have four or $500 in cash taken from them and held for forfeiture. Um, there is a lot of reformation that needs to be done in that area because it's going to cost, it, it's going to cost the defendant more than that four or $500 to have an attorney fight the forfeiture action. And the state knows that. Mm -hmm. And, and one of the things that has been proposed is that a forfeiture action can't take place until after there's a conviction, because technically right now, uh, you can file a forfeiture action and not without having a conviction. Forfeitures okay. are civil cases, at least in Indiana, they're considered civil cases. Mm -hmm. um, and they use the lower burden of proof of preponderance of the evidence rather than the higher burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. The other thing that makes forfeitures very easy for the state comparatively mm -hmm. is there is a statute by, by statute forfeiture actions in the state of Indiana are not eligible for a jury trial. I don't know why that is. There is, there is a constitutional provision. It's, it's article one, yeah, article one, section 20, article one, section 20 of the Indiana state constitution says that everything can be tried to a jury trial, including all civil cases. So I'm not entirely sure why forfeitures got carved out. I'm sure that there is yeah. some enterprising attorney out there who's just waiting to, to try that <laughs> one and create new law on that one. Sure. Um, but as a result of, as a result of the forfeiture not being a jury situation, it makes it very easy for the state. They have a lower burden of proof. They know that it's going to be more costly for a defendant than it is for them. Um, and they don't have to worry about the added expense of doing a jury. So yeah. it, it is not a good system. It is a system that is being abused very significantly. Um, and, and we do hope that eventually the states will kind of get around to, to addressing that. There was, there was some effort at forfeiture reform in Indiana last year after the, uh, the Tim's case came down from the Supreme Court of the United States, uh -huh. like a lot of things that got derailed by COVID. So hopefully they right. pick it back up here in the future. 
Right. Well, I mean, a ton of great information, though, overall, Jack, that's been you know packed into here into an, our, our inaugural episode. A lot to consider, a lot to think about. Obviously, fast and speedy trial forfeiture. These are conversations that are going to be popping up in episodes to come when we dive into specific cases that, you know, that are made, you know, Indiana or national news, as well as, in, you know, potentially cases that you, you and your team, uh, you know, over at your firm have worked on. So, hey, look, I really appreciate your time, really appreciate your expertise and walking us through some of these uh, these various factors today. And I'm already looking forward to the next one, Jack. You and me both. Alrighty. Well, Hey, look, and we want to thank you, our audience, our viewers, our listeners for joining us here on the Facebook live stream, uh, as well as after the fact, if you liked what you saw, you liked what you heard, you enjoyed this kind of content, please feel free to like comment, subscribe, share this knowledge with friends and family. We would love to have you back on future live streams, you know, leave comments below for us. If there's any particular topics you'd like Jack and I to address down the road, we can certainly, we'd love to have your feedback and we can certainly implement those topics into future episodes of the show so we'd love to hear from you and we certainly do appreciate you joining us for today's episode so for jack razimich i'm ryan ruff saying so long and we thank you so much for joining us for our inaugural episode of closing arguments